Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Killer Bambi Caught read the headlines in the Toronto Star newspaper on October 18, 1990. The day before, Milwaukee native Laurencia Lori Bambenik had been arrested in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Famously known around the world as Bambi Bambenik, her capture ended one of the most publicized prison escapes in American history and reignited the furor over her original conviction for murder. And the public couldn't get enough. Run, Bambi, run, became her supporters' rallying cry, and a fascination for her plight soon became a hot commodity with T-shirts, bumper stickers, and billboards. But for those who truly knew her story, her escape was a cry for justice justice that she had long been denied. For eight and a half years, Lori Bembenek had languished in a Wisconsin prison for a crime she said she didn't commit. Her husband's ex-wife, Christine Schultz, had been murdered, but Lori knew she was not the person who had pulled the trigger. Lori claimed she had been set up by a corrupt and chauvinistic Milwaukee Police Department because she was preparing to testify about their discriminatory hiring practices and illegal activities. A private investigator working for her had discovered that evidence at her trial had been tampered with, but the Milwaukee Prosecutor's Office had refused to reopen her case. And appeals were denied despite mounting evidence that someone else had committed the crime. The once confident and self-assured young woman had lost all hope of ever clearing her name. So when Lori spotted a prison window left accidentally open, she bolted. She knew a life on the run wouldn't be easy, but it was her last-ditch hope for any form of freedom. And freedom was what she enjoyed for three months until she was caught. Lori and her fiancé, Nick, loved being just an ordinary couple living in a remote Canadian city. 
She was working as a waitress and fitness instructor, and he was working as a short-order cook. They had rented a basement apartment and had even adopted a kitten. Lori and Nick met when he was visiting his sister, Mary Beth, who was also incarcerated at the Tai Chita Correctional Institute in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. They started corresponding through letters, and soon Nick was visiting Lori as well. Nick believed Lori was innocent and wanted to build a life with her, even if she was spending life in prison. He asked her to marry him, and she said yes. But a wedding wasn't ultimately in the cards for these two. And after three months on the lam, they were now sitting in a northern Ontario prison. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true crime story of a woman who became one of the most celebrated fugitives in American history. Her prison escape made headlines around the world, but then her luck and her fleeting freedom ran out in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Suddenly, the small northern city was the focus of a media frenzy, the likes of which it had never seen before or since. And Canada was soon a key player in a cross-border tug-of-war that would become a pivotal moment in the tragic life story of this famous woman. Was she a convicted killer fleeing justice or a political refugee in flight from persecution in her homeland? This is Woman on the Run, the Lori Bembenek story. Episode 2, Guilty Until Proven Innocent. It is the sentence of this court that you, Laurencia Bembenek, are to serve a term of life imprisonment in the Wisconsin State Prisons. The former Milwaukee cop and her boyfriend spent three months on the run before a tip led police to their Ontario hideout. Crowds cheered and cameramen jockeyed for position in front of the Thunder Bay Courthouse as Lori Bembenek arrived in a police cruiser from the local jail. Every news outlet was there. People Magazine, Inside Edition, Hard Copy, and even 60 Minutes. But within the frenzy of prying press, Lori spotted some welcoming faces. Her parents, Joseph and Virginia Bembenek, had flown in from Milwaukee, and they were anxious to see their daughter. Bembenek's most loyal supporters had always been her parents. Her pain is our pain, said Virginia Bembenek, when asked about their youngest daughter by a Canadian reporter. They had mortgaged their house and had already spent all their life savings trying to get her a new trial. We believe in her innocence, said her father. Now, they faced a new challenge, trying to get their daughter help in a foreign country. They waved to Lori when she walked into the courtroom. Lori, a former blonde, was now a brunette and was dressed in a conservative blouse and pants. She sat beside her new Canadian lawyers, Dave Dubinsky and Ron Lester. 
the two lawyers had agreed to help Lori as soon as they met her and listened to her story. Dave Dubinsky was 26 and just six months out of law school. But he believed Lori had a legitimate refugee claim. But in order to claim refugee status, the Canadian Immigration Act stipulated that a hearing had to occur within 48 hours of an arrest. So two days after her capture, Lori was sitting inside a small Thunder Bay courtroom with the world's media anxiously waiting outside. Lori was exhausted by the whole ordeal, and she hadn't slept much since being recaptured. But she was amazed at how the Canadians had treated her so far. Even the police who arrested her and her boyfriend Nick had been polite, and now two lawyers were defending her for nothing. For the first time in a long time, Lori felt that people were on her side and legitimately wanted to help her. With a refugee claim set in motion, Lori would remain in Thunder Bay, but her boyfriend Nick would not be staying in Canada. Dominic Gugliato was quickly deported and arrested in Wisconsin. He stopped writing Lori after a few months and would eventually serve time in prison for his part in their escape. It was the end of another love story for Lori Bembenek. The men in her life had always promised to stand by her, but never did. The last man she had given her heart to was Fred Schultz, and look at where that had gotten her. Not only had he abandoned her, he had possibly set her up to take the fall for a cold-blooded murder. On May 28, 1981, the phone rang in Lori Bimbenik's apartment. It was 2.42 in the morning. Lori was home alone in bed as her husband Fred was on duty that night. As a cop's wife, late-night phone calls were always a worry. But... It was actually Fred on the phone. There was panic in his voice. Chris has been shot, he yelled. Lori, still half asleep, wasn't sure what he was saying. He then said he was going over to the house to make sure the boys were okay. Lori quickly realized he was talking about his ex-wife, Christine. When Fred called back an hour later, He said Christine was dead. Lori was still trying to process the news when two Milwaukee detectives showed up at her door. They wanted to know if she owned a gun and did she own a green tracksuit. Lori was very confused but said no to both questions. Not long after the detectives left, Fred Schultz returned home with his patrol partner, Michael Durfee. The first thing the two police officers did was check Fred Schultz's off-duty 38 caliber revolver he kept in the apartment. Durfee noted that it had not been recently fired, and in fact, there was dust on it and it needed to be cleaned. Fred then asked Lori to accompany him to the morgue to identify Christine's body, a request Lori was very uncomfortable with, but she agreed to go. Fred put his off-duty revolver in a briefcase and took it with them. 
But for some unknown reason, the gun remained in Fred Schultz's possession for over three weeks. When it was finally submitted to the crime lab for testing, it was confirmed to be the weapon that had been used to murder Christine Schultz. For the Milwaukee police, the gun evidence only pointed to one suspect. Lori Bembenek had been home alone on the night of the murder. She had no solid alibi, and she had access to the gun that was in the apartment. So on June 24, 1981, just three weeks after the murder, Lori Bembenek was charged with killing Christine Schultz. Lori Bembenek's trial for first-degree murder began on February 24, 1982, nine months after her arrest. The case was front-page headlines, and it seemed like everyone in Milwaukee had an opinion on whether the pretty former cop was guilty or innocent. Hundreds lined up outside the courthouse every day hoping to get a seat inside. As for Lori... She still felt like she was stuck in a bad dream, and it would be all over soon. She couldn't understand why she had been charged in the first place, and now she was on trial for murder. From the get-go, the prosecution team made Lori out to be a calculating and jealous woman who detested the fact that her new husband was having to give his ex-wife almost $800 a month in support and mortgage payments. The prosecutor claimed that Lori liked to live in what he called the fast lane, and she expected the finer things in life which her new husband could not afford. The only way for Lori to live the life she wanted was to get Christine Schultz out of the picture. Several witnesses also claimed to have seen Lori in a green jogging suit like the one Fred Schultz's son described the attacker wearing the night of his mother's murder. The prosecutor brought up Lori's strong athletic abilities and suggested that she had run the 16 blocks to Christine Schultz's home, shot her, and then ran back to the apartment she shared with Fred in time to get his phone call. And under a grant of immunity from prosecution, Fred Schultz testified that he had left Lori home alone where his off-duty revolver was stored in a gym bag. She was the only person who had access to it the night Christine was killed. But the defense for their part presented a different theory. The initial examination of Fred Schultz's off-duty gun on the night of the murder showed that it was unused and hadn't even been cleaned in some time. Yet, once it was analyzed at the crime lab, the ballistics report concluded that it was indeed the weapon used to kill Christine Schultz. Could the gun first looked at and the one later tested have been different guns? Fred had not actually turned his gun into the crime lab until three weeks after the murder, and no one had a record of the gun's serial number. And what about Fred Schultz? the defense team asked. Wasn't he a more likely suspect? He was angry and bitter about having to pay his ex-wife support and pay the mortgage on the house he had built but no longer lived in. 
and Christine had told her divorce attorney that her ex-husband Fred had threatened her life. But Fred had a solid alibi. He was on duty the night of the murder. He and his partner said that they had been investigating a burglary across town. But it was later discovered that the two cops were actually sitting in a bar while on duty. Fred definitely had more reasons to want Christine dead. But as the trial continued, the circumstantial evidence against Lori continued to pile up. Brown hairs discovered on the body were initially found to be those of the victims. But then another expert witness claimed that two blonde hairs submitted to the crime lab were consistent with samples taken from Lori Bembenek's hairbrush. The blonde hairs had apparently been found on the gag around Christine Schultz's mouth. Years later, the existence of those blonde hairs would be called into question by the original pathologist. But there was even more hair evidence presented at the trial. Christine Schultz's two sons had described the assailant as a man with long red hair tied in a ponytail. Lori was blonde, but a few months after the murder, tenants in Lori's former apartment building complained of overflowing toilets. A plumber was called in and he fished a reddish-brown wig from a drain in a neighbor's bathroom. Not knowing it had any significance in a murder trial, the plumber threw the wig out. But when the police learned of the wig in the drain, they successfully recovered it at a landfill site. The prosecution claimed this was how Lori had disguised herself. Even though 11-year-old Sean Schultz was very certain that it was a man that had been standing over him on the night of his mother's murder. It wasn't Lori, Sean said from the witness stand. Even if she was wearing shoulder pads like a football player, it couldn't have been her. But regardless of Sean's compelling eyewitness testimony, the jury of five men and seven women took only three and a half days to deliberate before returning their verdict. Lorencia Bembenek was guilty of murder in the first degree. After the verdict was read, the presiding judge told the press that it was the most circumstantial case he had ever seen. On March 9, 1982, Lori Bembenek was sentenced to life with no eligibility for parole until 1993. By that evening, she was sitting in a small prison cell at the Taichita Correctional Institution for Women in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. It was the only women's prison in the state, and it housed over 200 inmates. Lori could not believe she had just been convicted of first-degree murder. And she wasn't the only one. People in Milwaukee were calling local radio stations and sending letters to newspaper editors to voice their strong opinion that Lori had not received a fair trial. Within a week of her incarceration, Lori had received hundreds of letters of support from people all across the United States. For months, Lori remained convinced that some terrible error would be discovered in her conviction 
and she would be released. Her lawyer assured her they'd win on appeal. But as the days turned into months, Lori began to lose hope of ever getting out of the nightmare she was living in. Meanwhile, Fred Schultz continued to give interviews and told reporters he would keep fighting to get Lori out of prison. He was adamant that she was innocent and he would wait for her forever. But apparently forever was time limited. Six months into her prison sentence, Lori received a letter from Fred saying he wanted a divorce. He was now living in Florida and had a new 19-year-old girlfriend. Lori and Fred's divorce was granted in June 1984, and soon after, Fred started publicly saying that he believed Lori was actually guilty of murdering his ex-wife. For many who supported Lori, it was Fred Schultz who they felt had possibly gotten away with murder. They believed that Schultz had hired someone else to murder Christine. One possible suspect was a guy by the name of Frederick Horenberger, a career criminal who had worked on a construction job with Fred Schultz and who was the ex-boyfriend of Lori's friend, Judy Zeiss. Horenberger had robbed and beaten Judy Zeiss several weeks prior to Christine Schultz's murder and was later sentenced to 10 years in prison. While in prison, he apparently boasted to other inmates that he had killed Christine Schultz. But he later denied any involvement in the murder and died of an apparent suicide while in a standoff with the Milwaukee police. Horenberger's potential involvement in Christine's murder wasn't the only troubling evidence that appeared after Lori's conviction. Lori's legal team filed three appeals citing police errors in the handling of key evidence. Bambenek and her supporters continued to believe that the Milwaukee police had framed her for Christine's murder because of her role as a key witness in the federal investigation into police corruption. Lori refused to give up and kept fighting to win a new trial. And while she was in prison, she also earned her bachelor's degree. She was the first female inmate in Wisconsin to do so. But the warden refused to let her attend the graduation ceremony, and Lori fell deeper into depression. Years later, she said that she had thought of suicide often while she was in prison, but didn't want to cause her parents any more pain than they had already endured. They had been her biggest supporters and the only real love she had left in her life. She wanted to prove her innocence for them, but with each passing year in prison, she was beginning to lose hope. But then, one day, while sitting outside on a picnic bench, Lori noticed a good-looking man visiting one of the other inmates. His name was Dominic Nick Gugliato, and Lori was instantly attracted to him. After eight years in prison, she had given up the idea of ever falling in love again. But Nick Gugliato had noticed Lori as well, and it didn't take long for the two of them to fall head over heels. They wanted to be together no matter what it took. So they came up with a daring plan. 
With the help of her new boyfriend, Lori escaped from prison. The lovers had no plan, so they just drove and drove until they reached a place where they felt they would be safe. It was a new country, a new home, and possibly a new life. After so many years in prison, Lori was tasting freedom once again, and it was magnificent, even if it was only fleeting. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Time moves slowly for Lori after her capture in Thunder Bay, Ontario in October 1990. For the next five months, she sat in a tiny prison cell in the city's decrepit jail as she waited for her refugee hearing. Her Canadian lawyers had warned her the process would take time. But Lori was willing to wait. She certainly wasn't in any hurry to go back to Wisconsin. And while she waited, the friends she had made while living in Thunder Bay would often visit her. Her bosses from the restaurant, Louie and Daisy Cabiz, would come by too, 
and one of her regular customers even got a group of carolers together at Christmas to sing beneath her prison window. Lori's Canadian friends were sticking by her, even though no one knew what the future held for her. And it was while she sat in prison in Thunder Bay that Lori got to know an ambitious Toronto Star reporter who would spend the next two years covering her immigration trial and her life in Canada. Well, my name is Jack Lakey. I'm a, a, a long, long time reporter at the Toronto Star. And back in 1991, uh, I was sort of splitting my time between the Queen's Park Bureau and some general assignment reporting. And somehow or other, I ended up uh, assigned to an immigration uh, hearing here in Toronto for Laurencia Bambi Bambenic. Gee, I must have written maybe 30 to 40 stories about this case over time. My interest was in the, in the immigration proceedings and bit-by-bit uh, bit case building that went on there to basically shred uh, the evidence that was used to convict her in Milwaukee. Jack recalls meeting Lori Bambenic for the first time. I went to uh, Thunder Bay in January of 1991 and uh, I interviewed her at the a very old uh, Victorian sort of uh, uh, imposing jail that they have at Thunder Bay, and and it was it. Uh, and I used the term Victorian for a reason, not just the architecture. It was very old. Anyway, I I uh, I was uh, put face to face with her, and I was surprised at how beaten down she seemed by the whole process. At that point, recall, she'd been in jail for most of 10 years and, of course, had her um, her brief fling with freedom here in, uh, in, in Ontario, uh, in Thunder Bay. And then she's taken back into custody. So she's, you know, beating down pretty low and feeling, feeling pretty low. And you could see it in her, in her, her body language and the way she talked. And so, but she, whenever, whenever she talked about the exhilaration of the few months of freedom that she had while she was working at this uh, diner in, in Thunder Bay, uh, you could see a different person. Uh, she became much more animated and uh, and bright, and her voice took on a more hopeful tone, and uh, she was uh, she was a different person. And then when we would revert to talking about the circumstances around her um, her conviction, at that point, inability to try and get people in, uh, in, in Milwaukee to take a second look at this. Then, uh, then her, her, her voice changed, her shoulders became more uh, sloped and rounded. And, and I, I, I noticed that in, uh, in the story I wrote uh, about my trip to Thunder Bay to interview her, that I described her shuffling steps as if she'd, she'd had uh, ankle uh, chains on for so long that she learned to walk in custody in very short strides in, in term, in, compared to the regular stride that a person would use. It was pretty remarkable to see because, uh, uh, you know, I, I had not had a whole lot of uh, contact with people that were in jail for a long period of time. And you could see how it had beaten her down. Lori was beaten down and exhausted by the constant struggle of trying to claim her innocence. But as the new year began, Lori was hopeful her refugee hearing would move forward and she would be allowed to stay in Canada. 
But then she was faced with yet another challenge. Immigration Minister Barbara McDougall issued a minister's certificate to have Bembenik deported to Wisconsin immediately, stating she was a threat to Canadians. The certificate would prevent her from pursuing refugee status. Lori's Thunder Bay lawyers quickly recognized that she needed an expert on constitutional and immigration law and referred her to one of Canada's top lawyers, Frank Morocco. Often called the F. Lee Bailey of Canada, Frank Morocco was certainly an expert on immigration law. In fact, he'd literally written the book on it, the 1984 Annotated Immigration Act of Canada. Morocco agreed to take on Laurie's case and quickly appealed the federal immigration minister's certificate of deportation. He claimed it was unconstitutional because it denied Laurie Bembenek the right to an open and fair hearing. And two months later, immigration adjudicator Carmen DiCarlo agreed. She ruled that the certificate which denied Bembenek the right to a hearing violated Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms. DiCarlo ordered that Bembenek could proceed to the first stage of Canada's two-part refugee hearing process. The first stage was a credible basis hearing to determine whether she had a legitimate refugee claim. Bembenek was seeking refugee status in Canada on the grounds that she could not obtain a retrial in the U.S., despite mounting evidence suggesting she was innocent. Therefore, she was the victim of persecution as defined by the Geneva Convention. Barbara McDougall was overruled, and that was the basis for the series of of hearings that played out over most of 1991 here in Toronto in, in, in immigration hearings and in court. No American citizen had ever successfully argued for refugee status on the basis of persecution. But immigration lawyer Frank Morocco was not going to let that stand in his way. He believed they had a very strong case, and he was planning to present witnesses at Lori's immigration hearing that would prove she had been framed by the Milwaukee Police Department to take the fall for a murder she didn't commit. And if it could be proven that she had been set up, this amounted to persecution, according to Morocco. What else would you call it, he asked reporters. As far as he was concerned, the U.S. justice system had failed Lori Benbenek. But I'll be damned if I stand by and watch the Canadian immigration system fail her, he declared. It was a very lucky stroke for Lori to get Frank Morocco as her lawyer. Uh, He not only was a very accomplished criminal lawyer at the time, he was considered one of the leading immigration lawyers in the country. One of the reasons that her case was so so consuming in terms of public interest in the U.S. is that there was always uh, an undercurrent that she had been wrongly convicted, that the evidence used against her in Milwaukee to convict her of uh, killing the uh, ex-wife of her her husband, uh, Fred Schultz, uh, was uh, trumped up, ginned up, and tainted. And Frank uh, Frank bought into that narrative and used that as the basis to make basically a ref- refugee claim for her. 
even though she had uh, got to Canada as a fugitive, Frank believed that there was good evidence that because she was wrongly convicted, that uh, she qualified as someone fleeing persecution, which is a key part of any uh, refugee claimant process. In February 1991, Morocco filed a 91-page brief with Canadian immigration officials outlining why Lori should not be returned to the United States. The brief outlined the entire case and focused on the circumstantial evidence that had been used to convict her. Morocco picked apart each piece of evidence, the gun, the red wig, the green jogging suit, the hair fibers, and testimony of some of the witnesses. He stated that the evidence was so circumstantial that immigration officials should not even consider her murder conviction when deciding if Lori should be granted refugee status. Morocco also pointed out that Lori's actions to show that white male police officers were treated differently from female officers and visible minorities had made her a target in the Milwaukee police force. He wanted the men and women deciding her fate to know that there had been more than one reason to get rid of Lori Benbenek. While Morocco and his legal team continued to prepare a strong case for a refugee hearing, Lori remained in the small Thunder Bay jail. Numerous requests for bail had all been denied as she was considered a serious flight risk. But Lori had no intentions of going anywhere. Why would I want to leave a country that has given me more hope than anything or anybody in the past 10 years, she asked. I want to stay in Canada. Then, six months after her capture in Thunder Bay, Lori was finally released. But it was only to travel to another prison, the Metro West Detention Centre in Toronto. Lori's immigration hearing had been moved to Mississauga, Ontario, which was a more convenient location for everyone involved. But now Lori was in a bigger, more dangerous prison far away from the Canadian friends she had made. And as a famous fugitive and former cop, there was already a target on her back. On the next episode of Woman on the Run, the Lori Bembenek story. Lori's Canadian lawyer, Frank Morocco, continues to investigate Christine Schultz's murder and Lori Bembenek's trial and uncovers even more startling evidence that points to a wrongful conviction and a police cover-up. Put together a very compelling case. And it also allowed the case, I guess you could say, to be relitigated here in Canada. Uh, that was a, that was a, a murder conviction, despite the uh, the questions surrounding it. That was a murder conviction that was sort of taken for granted uh, in the in the U.S. and in Milwaukee. But because of this ongoing refugee claimant process here in in, in Toronto, as I say, the case was uh, basically Frank was allowed to relitigate the case, and every time. There was an immigration hearing, and every time there was revelations at this immigration hearing, it was a big story in Milwaukee. So this momentum built to show that uh, in Milwaukee, where the conviction stood, that Lori was, uh, was railroaded. But 
Will Canada ultimately be able to prove Lori Bimbenik's innocence and protect her from extradition? There was never any really compelling evidence given as to motive, as to why Lori Bimbenik would have motive powerful enough to want to kill Christine Schultz. Another, another big flaw in the case. Or will Lori be forced to return to Wisconsin and face even more prison time because of her escape? There had been substantial evidence presented to support the idea that she had been uh, wrongly convicted. However, as the, as the uh, proceedings played out, it became more and more obvious that it probably wasn't going to work and that she would ultimately be sent back. And will this famous American fugitive ever receive the justice so many feel she has been denied? I won't pretend to believe that I know why they did what they did. Um, All I know is I didn't kill Christine Schultz, and more than one person went to an awful lot of trouble to, uh, to secure evidence against me. Woman on the Run, The Lori Bambenic Story, is written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. A special thank you to Jack Lakey. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. Visit us at storyhunterpodcasts.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you enjoyed this story and others on Story Hunter Podcasts, please subscribe on Apple or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.